0: You're listening to Grace and Fire, brought to you by Emerging Women. Today, my guest is Kristen Neff. Kristen is a professor of human development and culture at the University of Texas, Austin, and she has practiced Buddhist meditation since 1997. Dr. Neff and her family were the subject of the recent book and documentary, The Horse Boy, which documented her family's adventure with autism. A self-proclaimed self-compassion evangelist, Kristen Neff is the world's leading expert on self-compassion. In addition to authoring numerous academic articles on self-compassion, she has written a new book entitled Self-Compassion, released by William Morrow in 2011. Kristen will be a featured presenter at the 2013 Emerging Women Live Conference from October 10th to the 13th in Boulder, Colorado. In today's episode, Kristen and I spoke about the real meaning of self-compassion and how it differs from self-esteem, the masculine and feminine aspects of mindfulness and self-compassion, the researched results of self-compassion and what the findings mean for leaders and women leaders in particular, how self-compassion takes us from recognition to action and the power of creating a practice of self-care and love. And finally, Kristen offers sage advice for those women on the precipice of their own emergence. Here is my conversation, self-compassion, and essential practice for today's leaders with the fabulous Kristen Neff. Okay, well, hello and welcome, Kristen. How are you today?
1: Oh, I'm doing great. So good to talk with you.
0: I know I'm very excited about this call because your work has been so intriguing for me. When I was at Sounds True and we started publishing, it was when I first got exposed to your work. And it was so interesting, the concept of self-compassion because being around so many Buddhists you hear so much about compassion, but no one ever really calls out self-compassion. So I guess I'm, I'm leading with a question here to just maybe you could explain why that is and where this body of work came from.
1: Yeah, well, I did learn about self-compassion through a Buddhist meditation group. And the particular group I went to, which was that was back in 97 in Berkeley the woman leading the group did talk about the importance of giving yourself compassion as well as others.
0: Mm. But
1: it's interesting, even among Buddhists, there's still a lot more emphasis on compassion for others. And it's, it's interesting to think about why that's the case. I think um, in general, in most of the traditions, there is more emphasis placed on compassion for others. There was the assumption, I think, especially among early you know, Buddhists, teachers and scholars that, well, of course you have compassion for yourself. What we need to work on is compassion for others. And of course, in the West, it's just the opposite, that I think it's a lot easier for us to have compassion for others than ourselves. Uh, there's also a lot of misconceptions about what self-compassion is and what it means that are blocks um, that aren't really there for compassion for others. I mean, There's no one who's going to say, it's a really good idea to have compassion for others. There's a lot of people who would say that about self-compassion. I think that's part of the reason people don't talk about it. Although it's changing, it's changing fast, which is great.
0: Yeah, I was um, recently at a talk and Jack Kornfield was speaking Mm -hmm. and he was saying that in Tibetan, there is no word for self-compassion. There's only the word for compassion. And I just thought that was so interesting.
1: Yeah, well, in fact, when when I first decided I wanted to research this, and the first thing I had to do was define what self-compassion was, even in the the books I was reading, people didn't use the term self-compassion. They did talk about having compassion for yourself as well as other people. But the kind of, you know, putting it together, I think it's because I had been had done a two-year postdoc looking largely at self-esteem, and I wanted to compare the two so it seemed natural just to frame it self-compassion. Um, yeah, but so people are, are starting to talk about it a lot more, um, especially because of all the research.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned something that is equally interesting because it feels like the... Birth of the personal growth movement, and when it was really at its height around the '90s, mid '90s. It's so funny to think like the '90s, like that was even fast. Years ago, <laughs> isn't it still the '90s? Okay, yeah. But it was all about self-esteem, which at the time was such great work. I know Carolyn Mace has done some amazing work around that. But mm-hmm. it feels like this is a sort of an evolution of that. I don't know what to say, but maybe you could talk more about the difference as you see it between self-esteem and self-compassion.
1: Yeah, so um, people were in love with self-esteem psychologists for a very good reason. And that's because we know absolutely that feeling good about yourself, feeling worthy is linked to well-being, um, you know, more motivation, uh, more satisfaction with your life. Whereas if you hate yourself, obviously, you can be de- depressed, you're going to be anxious, you're going to have all sorts of personal problems. The issue is there are both healthy and unhealthy ways to get your self-esteem. So self-compassion, which, you know, just to find it very quickly, is, is being kind, supportive, caring towards yourself, remembering that all human beings are imperfect just like you are, um, that that is a really healthy way to derive a sense of self-worth. More typically, though, especially in American culture, to have high self-esteem, you have to feel special and above average. Mm. You know, if I said, Chantal, after, after you throw your big festival, yeah, that was average. You'd be crushed, <laughs> right? If you told me my book was average, I'd be crushed. Right. It's not okay to be average. Mm. And so if special and above average is the baseline then we're all feeling like we have to be a little bit better than others to feel good about ourselves. And it's that process of social comparison, you know, is she prettier than me, is he richer than me, Um, that causes a lot of nasty problems. Um, Mm -hmm. Look at bullying. Why do middle middle schoolers start to bully? That's one way to get high self-esteem, to feel good about yourself.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Why are people narcissists? Um, and then the other problem with uh, self-esteem is that it's contingent. We only have it when we succeed. And then the second one, we need it most, <laughs> which is when we fail, often um, self-esteem leaves us. So it's really a, a fair-weather friend. Mm-hmm. Um, We're self-compassion in contrast because the only requirement that you have to have to, get, to be worthy of compassion is to be an imperfect human being, which most of us can meet that requirement. Um <laughs> uh, you don't have to be special and above average. In fact, self-compassion connects us with others when we realize that all people have flaws, all people suffer, all people struggle. This is the human condition. Um, so, we, so we don't have to compare ourselves or, or feel better than others um, in order to have it. And it's also not contingent, right? Mm-hmm. You don't need to succeed to have self-compassion. In fact, it's precisely when you fail that you can say, wow, that was really hard, that was really painful, can I be kind to myself? just like you would be to a close friend you loved when they failed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what that does is by being supportive to yourself when you fail, then that means you can learn from the failure because you aren't just you know, lost in self-criticism and you're more willing to try again because when you fail, you don't say, I am the failure, you say, mm-hmm. I failed, and therefore, you know, what can I do differently next time? So, whereas self esteem often, when you fail, you just lose your self esteem. You think I'm a worthless loser and then you're stuck.
0: Right. And what about like the concept of, oh gosh, I have so many questions, but the concept of self love and just a feeling of heart or love in the mix? Because when I hear self esteem, I'm not feeling the love. I'm feeling like the comparison and the ambition and the ego attachment, the, you know, like you said, the relative value of uh, you know our self-worth but what about self-confession and self because self-love is also another one that's seems to be floating around that's it's got a different vibration i'm just curious
1: it does and just to clarify what i mean by self-esteem because people use the term in a variety of ways Mm -hmm. so the one that's problematic i think is is the one that's a positive evaluation of self-worth right? Putting mm. yourself in a box, people either labeled, you know, excellent, very good, good, not so good. So it's a it, global evaluation is how good am I as a person. And that's what's a problem because of course, you know, we're, we're an ever changing process. We're a verb, not a noun. We can't stuff ourselves in a box called good or bad because
0: mm-hmm.
1: our good days, our bad days, our strengths and our weaknesses. Um, and so, uh, what was the question? <laughs> well, just the whole how love. Oh, yeah, self love, yeah. self love. Yeah, I got it. I got it. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> so, you got a lot I to be say. Notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the self love. Okay. So there are three components of self compassion. The way I define it, one is self kindness, and that does include self love. Really mm. opening your heart to yourself, caring about yourself, being uh, there for yourself like you would be a close friend that you loved. Um, there's also, and this is what helps differentiate it a little bit from self-love, mm-hmm. is that uh, there's this sense, this sense of common humanity, right? All people are worthy of compassion. All people fail. Everyone suffers. It's not just me. That's mm-hmm. otherwise not self-pity. Self-pity is poor me. Self-compassion is, oh, life is really hard for everyone and no one leads a perfect life. Mm-hmm. And then also mindfulness, which is huge. Um, at least the way I define it, you have to be mindful to have self-compassion. First, you have to be aware of your suffering in order to open your heart to yourself. And believe it or not, we often aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we just don't want to look at it. We avoid it. We suppress it. We're just trying to fix things all the time instead of just saying, hey, you know, this is really hard right now. I, little, I need a little tenderness. So with self-love... Um, Self-compassion does include self-love, but the reason I don't really like that term is that it can be used to mean, to mean narcissism, right? The, yeah. the term's kind of vague. And so if you love yourself because you're special and above average, or if, in fact, I'm superior, mm-hmm. then that's when self-love isn't necessarily so helpful. So self-love framed in the context of a universal human love is very healthy. Self-love, which is kind of just just focused on the self, very self-focused, um is not so healthy i think. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And the emotions have to be there. It's, I sometimes I just say the word open-hearted towards yourself. It's it's not very scientific, but i think it gets the sense of it better.
0: Right. Right. You know, you you brought up another point, mindfulness, and it's so interesting just watching that work just take off into all different sectors, science and health and yeah. healing, and it's sort of a, it's, you know, something that came out of more of a Buddhist background, and then now it's sort of permeated more of the secular culture, and, and it's wonderful, but when yeah. I hear self one thing that, and this is my own, like, twist, so you can just agree or disagree, but, okay. all right, um, I find mindfulness, while it's so fabulous, just paying attention, and mm-hmm. um, it's a requisite, I feel that there is something very mm, mass, not very, yeah, masculine. Masculine is the word I'm going to use because <laughs> I'm using it because when I feel of into self-compassion, mm. I feel not only is it evolutionary, meaning that it's actually getting deeper than mm. mindfulness, but that mm. it it also has a feminine feel to it. And I'm just curious to yeah. see if you feel into that. I know that there's no science around this or what, but we're, you know, two women well, talking we're getting, here, so. <laughs> we're,
1: getting, we're getting close, actually, to the science, and I'll, okay. I'll tell you why. Um, I, I would say I can't say if we're absolutely there yet, but um, there okay. are some differences. So first of all, mm. mindfulness is necessary for compassion, for others or oneself. You might say it opens the door to self-compassion. Mm. Uh, and some people argue once you open that door, self-compassion automatically follows. I actually think that's not necessarily the case, because sometimes people can be very aware of their present moment experience very accepting without judgment of their present moment experience. But the emotion isn't necessarily there. The love, the care, the support. Um, Because, again, there are so many cultural blocks to to self-compassion. You might say, um, I do this in my workshops. I try to explain the difference. Uh, Mindfulness is like when you have your hands open and you're accepting things as you are. but Self-compassion is when you put both hands over your heart and you really have that tender, soothing touch. That's what that the love piece, the care piece, the kindness piece. And there are different physiological underpinnings of mindfulness and compassion. So mindfulness is more of a cognitive function, right? Yes. You're paying attention and you're also overriding impulses, which is the non-judgment and the non-reactivity. Whereas um, compassion taps into the mammalian caregiving system. And that's that feminine quality you're talking about. Yes. All mammals are designed to respond to warm, soothing touch, gentle vocalizations. Um, As mammals, that's the way we we were um, programmed so that we'd stay close to the mother and and feel safe and not wander off into the wild. Mm -hmm. So when you give yourself compassion, you actually are tapping into that caregiving system and there's a feminine nurturing quality to that. I mean, even even if you're a man, there's that, that part of you that responds to that feminine nurturing quality. And uh, I think it does feel a bit different, and I think both are absolutely necessary. And so I think what's happening in the mindfulness world is people, I mean, people, someone like Jon Kabat-Zinn, he's almost completely recognized the importance of compassion and self-compassion, but he didn't maybe or the movement didn't talk about it quite as much. And I think there were good reasons for that. I think in order to have this be accepted in secular society, mindfulness is a little bit easier to to accept than something like self-compassion. A lot of people say, oh, my God, hearts and flowers. Um, But anyone who practices Buddhism knows compassion and mindfulness are both necessary. But they are slightly different. Sometimes, especially with self-compassion, because all, all the blocks, we need a little extra training for compassion. Uh, so in our workshops, for instance, which is called Mindful Self-Compassion, we give a lot of concrete tools to help people not only be mindful of their experience, but to give compassion to themselves when that experience is painful. Uh, so yes, yeah, so you might say wisdom and compassion are, are, are masculine and feminine energies. Yeah. Okay,
0: well, good. Yeah. I'm so glad. And I'm, it's so interesting to hear that there's more science coming out along oh, yeah, those. Because,
1: lines. Yeah, and comparing the parts of the brain that are active with mindfulness versus the parts of the brain that are active with um, compassion. So, for instance, mindfulness doesn't activate the caregiving attachment system the way compassion does. So they are, they are different.
0: Right, right. And that's they're, why... They're,
1: they're dance partners. They do a dance together. You can sure. call it the tango, or you can call it the male partner or the female partner. Right. Yeah.
0: Although, not not to be weird... <laughs> <But>
1: the, <laughs> oh, does, go for it.
0: I know. It does seem like self-compassion is... It's. I don't know if, like I said, it takes it deeper, so it would be more... I don't know if the word hierarchical is the right word when you're talking in spiritual principle, because each one could take you so far, right? But there's something that because it, it's including, it transcends and includes, so to speak. It feels like it includes, my, whereas mindfulness doesn't necessarily include the, that component of the caregiver. It's not tapping into that. Yeah,
1: you, you need all of them, right? right. So there's paying attention to their, to the experience, there's relating to the experience non-judgmentally, there's relating to the experiencer with compassion, right. and then, of course, there's wisdom, which is understanding the nature of both experience and the experiencer. So you might say they're cumulative in the sense that each builds on the other. Right. But, of course, they're all part of the path. They're all part of having the open heart and open mind.
0: Right, right.
1: So... Yeah you, ha- just, you have to start the very first step is actually just paying attention you have to start there so the other steps can unfold
0: Oh god I know that's so true I um I remember when oh god it wasn't too long ago and it might be embarrassing to say in this podcast but I remember the point in I was in therapy at the time where I realized that other people had perspective like I did mm-hmm. like that you know it was just so when I fully fully realized it and I feel like there's, that's when my unfolding and my spiritual work really began, was that point of realizing, you know, stepping out of that narcissism. Not that I was particularly diagnosed with it, but, you know, so, and I was kind of an aware person, but that point where you actually realize that there's more going on, and it's time to pay attention, is, yeah. nice. the world opens up.
1: Yeah, no, it does, it does. Um... Absolutely. And you know, the other thing too, why mindfulness is foundational and we need to do it is because our natural tendency as living organisms is to avoid pain or to fight it and try to fix it. Right. Mindfulness, we can finally say, hey, pain is happening. Suffering is happening. I can't always fix it. Certainly not in the present moment, you know, maybe in a few moments, but right now this is happening. And so that clarity opens up all sorts of possibilities for new responses, including the response of compassion. Mm. So um, if, if we're just lost in our thoughts or self-focused and lost in worry or beating ourselves up, uh, we don't have that perspective. It, it mm-hmm. really narrows our, our point of view. So. Mm-hmm. so don't judge yourself for being a narcissist. I um, know. Sure oh, you thank you. No. But I've got to say, self-judgment is very self-absorbed, isn't it? People think they're selfish as a kind of themselves, but what is more self-absorbed than obsessing about how worthless you are?
0: You know. Oh <laughs> my God, that is so deep. I can't even believe it. <laughs> that is such a game changer.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm serious. Think about it. I mean, yeah, you've thought about,
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> I've thought about it. <laughs> but I've, I can't believe it. It's so liberating. Yeah. So once you learn to open your heart to yourself, your heart's open and then it can open to other people. Right. And, and, and again, you're framing, you're saying, Hey, I'm a human being who's flawed. Okay. Let it go. And I don't have to like judge myself or think about whether I'm not a loser. I can just say, Hey, I can respond to that with kindness. And then you can open your heart to other people because you aren't obsessing about how worthless you are anymore. And it's just you know, and again, the research supports everything I'm saying. That's a nice thing at this point. There's so much research that in the beginning it was kind of, you know, I wrote these ideas and this is how I think it's working, and now there's so much research to support all of it. Right. Uh, so but for those listeners who are saying, mm, I don't know, there actually is empirical evidence yeah. it's, it's so it's so good for mental health, it's good for relationships, it's good for coping, it's good for you know, taking care of yourself, exercising, it's its really, you haven't found any area in which self-compassion is useful. Right.
0: Well, tell me a little bit more. There's something about, again, self-compassion, and I know this from your work, that has yeah. an action component, and you can feel it in self, when yeah. you, you know, there's action around it. So can you tell me a little bit more about how and again, I think this is sort of the mindfulness to self compassion trajectory. That self compassion has more of an action oriented feel to it. So maybe you could talk a little yeah. bit more about that.
1: Okay, and I, I will. And I'll, hope, I'll try not to get too technical because this is actually a big debate in the field right now. Are mindfulness and compassion the same? Are they different? Do they always co um Okay, so, I,
0: I hear. We can back off then. Don't worry. No, 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 it's good. No, it's good because it's, it's
1: worth doing. Let's okay, good. Just let me see this action component. So compassion, by definition, is concerned with the alleviation of suffering. Okay, mm-hmm. so the Dalai Lama, his life is dedicated to the alleviation of suffering. Mm-hmm. So there is an action component. In fact, the, um, the action, uh, the parts of your brain associated with action get activated when you have compassion. There's this, there's this readiness to act to alleviate suffering. Mindfulness is about accepting things as they are in the present moment. But you actually need to have both simultaneously. In other words, my experience is painful. This is the truth of that reality. If I bang my head against the wall of this reality, it will just make it worse. I have to accept this moment is painful. But I can direct compassion for myself because this moment is painful. Right? I, I, can, mm. I can hold myself with love without trying to change my experience. Mm. So there, there's a slogan in our, in our Mindful Self-Compassion Program, which is we give ourselves compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad. Mm. Okay, that's kind of deep. Yeah, so if you one use, more time. If, okay, we give ourselves compassion not to feel better, mm. but because we feel bad. So if you use compassion as like a slick new form of resistance to push your pain away, Mm -hmm. then you aren't accepting the reality of the present moment. You're still in fix-it mode. You're Mm -hmm. trying to avoid the truth of the present moment. And we know that resistance just makes things worse.
0: Mm -hmm. But
1: once we fully accept the reality of the present moment and we give ourselves compassion because, hey, this hurts right now, this is really hard, then what that does is as future moments unfold. We can act in a way that alleviates suffering, but not from this reactive place, this should not be happening, mm-hmm. <laughs> or from the place of, hey, I'm going to try something different, or you need to change, you know, you, you need to back off, or do whatever you need to do to respond to the situation in a way that is going to alleviate suffering.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But in the moment, it's there. And if you don't accept it, you're just going to make yourself crazy.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My hand's up on that one. Um, well,
1: and, you know, well, it's, you aren't the only one.
0: <laughs> I know, right? Well, it's it's just so interesting because there is a fine line where, let's say, I've got something in my life that is creating pain, and I need to make a change, and mm-hmm. I don't want to go to this self improvement place okay. where I'm desperately, you know, I can't be where I am now if I only make these changes, then I'll be happy. But yes. at the same, and then I will be perfect as, as well. Right, <laughs> right, right, That's the quest for perfection.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> but, you know, there's sometimes you do need to make a change internally as well. I mean, there's, yeah. uh, and so I'm, I'm curious to see how you, you balance that when you need to make a change, but you don't want to get into that self-improvement, but you do want to make some shifts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, one of um, my big areas of interest is how to motivate yourself to change with self-compassion. As opposed to harsh self-criticism, which is the way most people try to change. Mm-hmm. You know, they think if they say, I'm a, I'm a fat loser, that's going to help them go to the gym.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, in fact,
1: it's probably going to make them depressed and have to eat a whole bag of Oreos because they're mm-hmm. fat loser, right? So why, why even bother? Um, so when you care about yourself, you know, when you love yourself, going back to that word self-love, you are going to want to alleviate your suffering. You're gonna want to be healthy and happy. That's that's what we feel when we care about someone. So we will make changes, not because we're worthless or inadequate, we'll make changes because we care about ourselves. And that is actually the motivational power of self-compassion. So we have to accept that yes, we're imperfect, we will never be perfect, but because we care about ourselves, we're going to try our best. You know, it's funny. It's so easy to see with parents and children. We kind of get it intuitively, right? If, if a right. kid comes in with a failing grade and the parent said, you know, didn't accept them and said, I'm ashamed of you. You know, you're a loser. You'll never amount to anything. That's not going to motivate that kid. That, that the kid's going to, you know, just feel terrible about themselves and maybe drop out of school eventually or at least have so much anxiety and depression they'll become unhappy. But if the parent says, Hey, everyone fails sometimes. It's okay. I still love you. I still accept you exactly as you are. But, you know, at the same time, I know you want to go to college, and I really want you to be happy and, and to fulfill your dreams. So what can I do to help and support you? And that's the motivational power of self-compassion. That's where we get the impetus to change because we care, not because we're imperfect or unacceptable as we are.
0: Right.
1: Carl Rogers says, the curious paradox is it's only when I accept myself that I can change. You know, if we're fighting ourselves and judging ourselves for being imperfect, we're too, we're too lost in the fix-it game to actually give ourselves the emotional support we need to grow.
0: Right, right. Love that. <laughs> no, it makes such a difference. How has this work played out in your life?
1: Ah, well, um, you know, the whole reason I got into self-compassion, it wasn't out of academic interest. Um, It was finishing up my Ph.D. in Berkeley in 97, and I had just gotten, had a divorce that was very messy, and I was under a lot of stress. And so, really, the first night, I went to this Buddhist group, and and the woman talked about the importance of self-compassion. It really was a light bulb moment. And I stopped beating myself up for what had happened, where the mistakes I had made, and I tried just supporting myself, uh, accepting myself, flawed human being as I was, and I I could see the difference almost immediately. Um, But then the time, you know, when it really, really helped me was about seven years later. Thank God I had a lot of self-compassion practice at that point um, when my son was diagnosed with autism. And uh, you know it's hard to imagine how I would have coped if I if I didn't have self compassion. It was such a lifesaver, you know. So for instance, actually the day he got diagnosed, I was on my way to a meditation retreat, and I said to my husband, "Oh, I'll cancel the retreat. We'll sit and process with this." And he said, "No, Kristen, you need to go to the retreat. You need to work with this in a meditative, calm, open-hearted state, so you can come Mm. back." And so, so for instance, your child gets diagnosed with autism. All these feelings come up that you think you aren't supposed to have, right? Feelings like disappointment, grief, and you think, I'm not supposed to feel this. I love my child. You know, I I shouldn't be reacting this way. But, of course, you do because you're human. And so I was able to hold all my pain and all my grief and all these difficult emotions in this wide space of compassion and then what happened is they just passed through much more quickly, and I could let them go, and once I opened my heart to myself for the, for the pain of you know I had an autistic child, and what that would mean, then my heart was open, and then I could keep my heart open to my son and love accept and love and accept him. You know and, yeah. and then later, when he was older, and he would just have these horrible, horrible tantrums. Yeah. And uh I would, instead of, you know, obviously I'd try to help him and make sure he was safe, but I would put most of my focus, especially when it was very bad, on myself for actually for saying, this is so hard. And, you know, i put my hand on my heart. I do that a lot. Physical gestures of self-compassion are the most powerful. I would put my hand on my heart, and I would say, gosh, Kristen, this is so hard, you know, but I'm here for you. I I'd really spoke to myself like I would speak to a good friend. And it gave me the strength and also the courage and the belief in myself to get through it. So, over and over again, I saw that it, it helped me cope tremendously. Um, and I know I'm a much better mother because of that. Oh. So, yeah. I, you know, I've got the research, but it's really my own life. I almost do the research to prove what I know. Right. Because <laughs> I've just seen it over and over again in my own life.
0: Yeah. I love the fact that there's research out there and I do, you know, appreciate the validation, but I almost don't really, I'm not, I don't need it. You know, when I hear a lot of people speaking about different experiences, I can just so feel the truth. And I don't know if that's because I'm more body centered and I feel like I'm, I can resonate when something um, feels right. Mm-hmm. But I just don't feel like I'm hungry for the mind valid- validation of of the science of yeah. this type of stuff. But yeah. it's good well, that it's out there. You're
1: already open to these types of ideas. The, the research is really useful for people who are skeptics or who think it's hearts and flowers, you know, that that it's sugarcoating somehow. But yeah, no, I, I totally agree that if you're already open to these right. ideas, then you don't need the research.
0: I hear you. I, it does make it accessible for for people yeah. who are skeptical. You know, if we sure. want to
1: put this in schools or business, for instance, yes, it's very yes. important that there's an empirical base um, for all these ideas. And is that yeah.
0: happening? How is this work going from, obviously, you've benefited, I've certainly benefited since I've discovered you, <laughs> and I'm going to put my hand on my heart when my kids come through the door in 15 minutes, um, <laughs> be- <laughs> because they didn't take a nap, so I'll be having that hand on the heart. Um, yeah. But and in general, where else is this going?
1: Well, it, it's, it's, all, it's a fairly new movement, right? I mean, I just published the first article on self-compassion in 2003. So the field is only about 10 years old. Hmm. Uh, so right now at this point, the main movement is we're teaching lots of workshops and other people are teaching workshops. And there's a lot of focus on helping people to learn this. A lot of mindfulness teachers are now um, teaching self-compassion. It's beginning to make inroads in places like healthcare, um, training, training counselors, therapists, training nurses a little bit. Um, there's certainly interest in education, um, but no program has fully been developed yet. So we're, we're right now at the point of a lot of interest, but not a lot of concrete um, applications. I think that's gonna change really fast, though. I mean, everything's just growing exponentially. Yes, uh, but you know, mindfulness has been around for thirty years, and they're everywhere. But this this field is really only ten years old, so it'll take us a little right. while to catch up. <laughs>
0: yes, well, and I'm... you know,
1: but I think what will happen is it will be integrated into mindfulness interventions because the two really go hand in hand. So it's not like we have to reinvent the wheel. This stuff can be integrated in, in the mindfulness programs that, that are already in business in the schools and the healthcare. Sure. So it shouldn't take as long for sure.
0: Well, I'm excited about it as it specifically relates to merging women, because yeah. as I said, I feel like it speaks to me in a way that mindfulness was very practical and it helped me. But when I heard about your work and I started reading it, I felt like I really was wrapping myself around it. And I feel that that kind of connection is going to happen with women and especially women who are stepping into leadership positions because we tend to be hard on ourselves.
1: Yes. Yeah. And it holds us I t- back. I totally agree. Well, even just the interest in all of our workshops, it's about 85% women. So I'm sure right. I sense a women really resonate with this because self-compassion really is about nurturing yourself, mm-hmm. caring for yourself. And women are much more comfortable doing that. That's a lot of who they are, not only biologically as mothers and, and as we're socialized, but it's just something that, you know, it speaks to women more powerfully, this thing of being caring and nurturing. Um, and when women, see, women, though, are socialized to be caring and nurturing to their kids and their spouse and other people. They aren't socialized to give it to themselves. In fact, they're told that's selfish. And um, that's why it's so liberating for women when they realize, wait a second, I count two. And it doesn't mean I have to be selfish. It just means you know, I don't have to cut myself out of the circle of self-compassion. I can see myself as a human being worthy of love like everyone else. Um, and I think especially for female leaders who often do motivate themselves with self-criticism, that this will be um, a new way that they can motivate themselves, that they can give themselves um, the safety to accept the fact that failure happens, and therefore to learn and grow from their failures, and therefore to have the emotional support they need to try again. Um, there's just so many ways it helps people cope and function more effectively. That I, I know it's going to be. I think it's good for all people in a leadership. Of course, position. of course, there's yeah. some more blocks to it men have more blocks to it a lot of men think oh this stuff is for sissies you know and there's so much I, I'm sure you know there's so much now saying that female the female way of communicating and doing things is actually much more adaptive now to the way the way business is run yes it's not the old hierarchy that you know women's skills are actually more valuable and I think this is another area where women's Understanding that care, concern, compassion, connectedness is something we want to develop—that's also going to help them develop the skill of self-compassion, which is going to lead to, which which we know from research leads to much um, better functioning. So
0: yes, well may it be so. May it be so. I really hope this work, in the same way that mindfulness has infiltrated some of the leadership trainings and corporations, I hope that this actually is as prolific, because I think it is much more relative to the subtler needs of our society, which are in communication and vision and things that, you know, I think that women are going to be carrying this as they become leaders, but also men, it's sorely missing in the current structure, as you just said. And so the more of this kind of approach, I think we have a better chance of really turning the trajectory around because the way things are looking now, it's, I feel like we need either a detour or a different road.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's for sure going to happen now to what extent it's going to happen. I can't say because the other, the forces, you know, competition and um, all those forces are so strong, but without a doubt, this is a, a, a movement Mm-hmm. And it's just going to grow more powerful. You know why? Because it's true and it works. Done. <laughs> so it has a lot going done. for it. <laughs> I know, right? So, cool. Yeah.
0: Well, as we wrap, I'm wondering if you had any words of wisdom for women that are emerging. And what I mean by emerging is that they they have really done a lot of this mindfulness work and are you know, more connected to the deep parts of themselves and they have a better handle on the truth of who they are. And, and once that happens, you really start to explode, right? You, you like, I, you know, you start to compromise less and, and start to make those hard choices that really do align with your Mm -hmm. deepest desires. And, and, but there's a lot of courage. There's a lot of you know, challenges, and that there's an alchemy that happens during that stage. And I'm just curious to see if you had some specific advice or wisdom that you could pass on to women that are in this, on the precipice of their manifestation.
1: Yeah, so um, I would say that having the emotional support is, is so key for making me for having these transformations, for um, making them successfully. And the strength of woman, again, is especially, we know how to be compassionate. We know how to be caring. We know how to be nurturing. The only thing we need to do is to give permission to ourselves to be that way with ourselves. So it's, it's really, if you can use the skills you already have and turn them towards yourself, it's going to just make the the process unfold, you know, much more naturally and uh, really in a much more support, a supportive environment. So basically use the skills you have Just give yourself permission to use them with yourself
0: <laughs> Nice Okay, well thank you so much Kristen It's been a real pleasure
1: uh, Same here, thanks for having me And and, and uh, congratulations, you're just leading a great movement I'm so impressed
0: Oh Well thank you for being a part of it I'm so looking forward to seeing you And seeing you live And spending more time talking about this work and others Alright,
1: same here well, Thank you uh, Looking forward to it we you